Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. Startups are known for their ability to quickly pivot, but how do established companies learn to adapt more quickly to technological change? In this episode, you'll learn lessons about the future of IT from the CIO of one of the largest companies in the world. Craig Walker is the VP and Global CIO of Shell Downstream. When Craig became the CIO of Shell Downstream in 2014, he called a meeting with the leadership. Together, and with the help of tons of sticky notes, the team analyzed everything that was holding them back. They had serious technical challenges that needed to be quickly solved. Today, Craig joins us to discuss the changing nature of IT and shares how he encourages innovation, incorporates new tech, and utilizes massive amounts of data to steer the super tanker that is Shell. So get ready for an inside look at how one of the largest and most fascinating companies in the world is driving technological change and innovation. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps. Craig, welcome to IT Visionaries. We are so excited to have you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So Craig, part of the reason we're so excited today is that you have a wealth of knowledge speaking from a CIO that has a massive scale and operations to work with. We'd love for you to dive a little bit into what your current role entails and some of the scope of operations of Shell Downstream. Okay. I think people often forget the sheer scale of what we do. Basically, most oil companies are divided into two parts. There's the upstream, where you look for, find, and get the oil out of the ground. And in our case, there's then the downstream. That covers trading and supply. It covers all our manufacturing facilities, be those petrochemicals plants or our refineries, lube oil, blending plants, etc., on into our B2B businesses, which are lubricants, marine, speciality products, bitumen, and just about anything else you can make from oil, onwards through into what the public tends to see a lot more of us, I guess, is around the retail sites. Just to give you a little bit of a feel of that, we have 45,000 retail sites. We operate in some 80 countries in the world. Through those sites, we sell 200 billion liters of fuel a year, 350 million cups of coffee, 250 million liters of fizzy drinks, 450 million snacks. Yeah, this is a big business. That's more outlets than, say, Starbucks and McDonald's put together. We're the number one seller of lubricants. In aviation, for example, somewhere in the world, we're refueling an aircraft every 13 seconds. Somewhere in the world, every 14 seconds, a tanker turns up to one of those retail sites to refuel it. That's 24-7. So you imagine the IT running behind this in terms of distribution, in terms of inventory, in terms of manufacturing. This is an enormous business. And so as CAO, how do you look at all of the different aspects of that? How many employees are we talking about worldwide? Are you talking Shell here or the IT organization? I guess if you're talking Shell, we probably have around 96,000 employees who are on the Shell books. But if you look at the number of people who turn up to work for Shell every day, there's probably around a million people. You, know, you think we probably have 500,000 in our retail sites alone working various shifts. Then you have all the people out on the refineries, the petrochemical plants, all the drivers. It's an enormous organization. And so as you look across the landscape of IT, you kind of see that 
organizations with that type of scale aren't exactly everywhere. How do you, as a leader in IT, look at the kind of advantages that you have and the ability to look at data across so many different things and leverage them in your everyday decisions? Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, if you go back, I don't know, five, 10 years, we very much worked in the silos that I've described. So trading and supply trading did its own thing. It's one of the biggest trading organizations out there. They did what they needed to do. The manufacturers did what they needed to do. The B2B guys, the retail guys. And our systems were set up very much to operate in that way. Our biggest global system is our SAP system, finally went into place after about 10 years of design and build, and that went in in 2014. That operates for 45,000 people. It does everything. It is the heart of the machine of downstream. And around that are built many, many other systems that do many of the specialities that we need. Now, of course, the interesting thing about that is we were very much organized by the silos I discussed. As you move forward now, And you look at how you're really trying to get that supply chain right, all the way from when we're deciding what crudes to buy, what crudes to run in refineries, through to what the end customers and consumers really want. You have to start looking at data across that organization. And I think one of the biggest changes the last two or three years is how do we understand how to use that data end to end? Because at the moment, we've been optimizing it down those silos. And that, for most companies of our size, is a huge, huge challenge. On the other hand, quite often we know better than our customers how much they buy off us globally. I know we're one of the biggest sellers of Coca-Cola products globally. I know how much lubricant we sell to a particular car manufacturer and where we sell that through. Quite often they don't know that. And that gives us a big advantage in the marketplace because we understand more about what's going on with their product than sometimes they do. That's remarkable. I mean, the fact that you sell more Coca-Cola than anyone in the world is remarkable on its own. But the idea that they don't necessarily know, they meaning all the different folks whose products that you're selling, that they don't necessarily know how big of a rocket is in the pond, so to say. Well, yeah, because quite often they've suffered from the same problems as us. And they may sell through OEMs, through dealers, through distributors, and they lose sight of their end product as well. Because I have global systems, I can actually see it. Now, sometimes I have trouble pulling all that information together, but I can do it. And that helps me win and negotiate contracts. So how do you bring new technologies to Shell Downstream? It's not so much the lead on the technology, it's the lead on the business. So when I came into this role four years ago now, we looked at everything we didn't like about the way things were working. I changed out most of the people on the leadership team, brought in a fresh crew. We looked at, so why are there things that have frustrated us over the years? We know this is a massive business. There have to be certain things that we need to focus on, and could we cure that problem? So we did the classic cover the wall in stickies, write lots of things on it, group them. And we said, you know what, if we could do three things better, just three things, we could cure quite a lot of our problems. And the number one thing was, we said, commerciality. IT had lost focus. It was focused too much on the technology and far too much on just being a service. The business wanted us to do it. We went away and did it. We didn't challenge it. We didn't argue about it. We did it. We said, no, no, that's got to change. I don't care whether you're me or you're the guy who comes to fix my laptop. Not that that makes them the lowest of the low. They're probably far more important than me, those guys. 
but do they understand how the part of the business that they're working for makes money? Do you understand on that complex supply chain that I've just sort of glossed over in some respects, where the money's made, where the real value is generated? Because if you do, not only can you start to have a sensible conversation as a member of a business team, but you can actually prioritize your day. You have a framework around where to have conversations. The second theme we hit was one team. I don't want to hear any more us than them. IT is an integral part of the downstream business. And more and more these days, if we fail, we will fail that business. And I would argue, why would the Shell brand, and we can come back to that, be relevant in five, six, 10 years time if we don't deliver something very different than we deliver today? And the third one was business outcomes. Everything is about the outcome. Everything is about putting a dollar on the bottom line of our business in a safe, secure, sustainable way, right? And when you look at that, Bringing the technology in is actually about the business outcome. What's the outcome I'm trying to drive? What actually are we trying to do? And when you understand that, I suspect the next question you'll ask yourself is, what data do I need to do that? Do I have that data? Where is it? Can I move it? Can I process it? And can I display it? You know, I might want to do calculations with it. I don't know. But I will need to display it back to the person who's going to use it. That could be someone out on the refinery who's trying to fix a problem with a pump. That could be via augmented reality. It could be via a preventive maintenance systems, AI, machine learning that got the person to go to that part of the plant in the first place. It could be a better understanding of the consumer that's about to drive onto our forecourt. could be a better understanding of the machine that somebody's running, looking at the data in real time and saying, can I actually blend a lubricant just for your machine? Can I give you a service that's very different for today? So my point is, start with the business outcome. Look at what data you need. Then you move to what's the technology I'm going to use that's really going to deliver this. So I don't know whether that answered the question, Ian, but I don't want to come from the technology. I want to come from the business outcome. And that was the big change we started to push into the mindset of this department. Think differently. It's no longer good enough being the tech guy. You've got to be the guy on the business team who really understands what the business is trying to achieve. And just like a CFO sits there and goes, gosh, I really understand the numbers. I can give you insight into the business. I want my guys to sit there and go, well, I really understand the technology. I understand the disruptive business models. I understand what the technology could do. What about if we go try this? That might be a way to solve the problem you're after, or that might be the way to create the opportunity that you're after. I love that because it reimagines the CIO role as a knowledge broker, where you're controlling the information and allowing it to enlighten what the other business units are doing. And I think that that's how you get to the core of being reactive versus being preventative. Like you said, that's the key there. When you're informing the business units, oh, you know you could be doing this, or in order to get ahead of it, in this way, rather than kind of the old way, which was something's broken, can we fix it? Exactly. And, you know, when I joined Shell back in 1981, we basically had six rivals. If you remember, we were talked about as the seven sisters. Now I have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of rivals. And some of them I can see that might be Amazon, Alibaba, Tesla, GE. So the whole landscape is changing. And of course, there's a huge number of other oil companies out there as well. But if my people understand where I make the money and where the value is generated and where we could be uh, disrupted, so do, I don't know, a million startups out there who are looking at us and going, wow, they're profitable. 
I don't want all that infrastructure stuff, just like, I don't know, an Airbnb or an Uber or an eCab or whatever it may be. I just want that piece. And you know what? I could play in this technology. I could create that market and I can take that away from them. Now, what's the big advantage we all have as established companies? It's not the business model. It's not the applications. It all comes back to the data. If I have more data than you, and that data is of value, and I know how to use that data to create knowledge, to create information, to really drive a decision, a support in a way I've never done before, I have an advantage over you. And I have an advantage it's hard for you to catch me up on. Except, of course, when I look at the Googles and the Facebooks, who have more personal data than I will ever have. So how do I beat them at a game of understanding my consumers and my customer needs? You know, it's so funny that you say that because we have a future episode where we talk to a startup CTO <laughs> about the advantages that big companies have with their data. And one of the things that she said, which was so interesting, is that startups need to figure out how to leverage publicly available exactly. data in a way and look at the numbers in a different way. You have to have a different frame of thinking. And I think there's a lot of times where larger companies and executives, especially in IT, look at the idea of like, oh, I have to move the Titanic. I'm surrounded by all of these speedboats that are all the startups that can move quickly. But you realize there's an advantage of being able to have a big boat that might move a little bit more slowly when everything is contained in that boat. Is that kind of an apt analogy? I think it's an apt analogy. It's a good way of looking at it. I use big fish and little fish, but I can see lots of little speed boats whizzing around and I'm in the super tanker. I guess I should never say Titanic. But I genuinely believe that if we cannot leverage technology to turn product into service, we're in big trouble. Because why would you come to a Shell service station in 10, 15, 20 years' time, particularly if you have an electric car? You know, I'm one of the biggest sellers of differentiated fuels through our V-Power offering in the world. I can't differentiate electricity to you. I can't claim I have X electrons that spin faster. I can't differentiate hydrogen to you. So what's going to get you to come to me? It's going to be a service. In the UK, we've just purchased First Utility about six months ago. That gives me access to 800,000 home consumers of electricity. What if they now have an electric car? What if I can offer them a seamless service that when they come to one of my sites and charge their car, they get the same tariffs, the same discounts they would at home? They don't even have to pay because it'll be on their monthly bill. People want service today. If any of us think about where we buy and what we do, it's about service. But to come back to your analogy, I actually have to have a super tanker full of lots of little speedboats. It's all very well me having the data, but if I can't move at the same pace and with the same type of innovation and the same risk-reward mentality as the startup, ultimately, I think I'm going to lose that battle. You look at the way a VC operates. They may pick 100 startups. They may fund those startups, but they'll be ruthless about, I expect you to deliver this by then. And if you can't, sorry, you're gone and I'm on to the next one. And if they're lucky, 10 might get to proof of concept and they get their payoff that two actually make it big. That's a tough mindset to get going in a big company because we have to accept we're going to fund lots of little things. And you know what? A whole bunch of them are going to fail. That's okay. We'll learn. We'll move on to the next one. But we're not the same as a VC. We have shareholders. We have stakeholders who expect the type of return they expect from a big company. So we have to work out how much money do we want to put into that sort of work? How do we change the culture and mindset of our people 
in IT to work in a different way. I need people who are going to challenge the business, innovate in the business, think differently, and are happy to learn from failure. And no one stigmatizes failure. That's a different mindset. How do you do that internally? I didn't know that that's fascinating. Well, we try hard. We do hackathons. We do innovation days. We do learning days. We have our own digital accelerators running inside. We have teams of business and IT co-located in WeWork offices, or we build our own innovation spaces internally. I have a space here in London called The Foundry where I encourage people to go play with new stuff. It's off-the-shell network. You can do what you want. Let's see what ideas we come up with. Let's get real close to the business. Let's get some business folks in there. You know, the whole agile mindset, trying to swing from a waterfall mentality, which works very well in my legacy area, to be more innovative around the edge. In fact, I launched a methodology some 10 years ago with some colleagues when we were in trading, and we called it Edge. And it encompasses agile and DevOps and Scrum, et cetera. But it was a mindset shift because you make the money on the edge. The big systems have got to keep running. My systems of record, my invoicing, my statements of account, my trucks, my inventory, my HSSE, all that's got to work. But around the edge is where you innovate, is where you do things fast. You try it out. Give it a go. See what that data could do. Visualize that in a different way. And you see that happening in so many places. I've probably got anywhere between 70 and 150 projects running at the moment that some companies would call digital. These are digitalization. I personally hate the word. I think it's a new phase of modernization. I think I've been doing digital for the last 35, 40 years, but never mind. But these are these great technologies that have come together at a moment in time that if you can blend right, backed up by the data you have, you can do quite remarkable things, not only within your own company and its processes, again, all the way down the supply chain, but out there changing the way consumers view you and the way they want to use you to be part of their daily or weekly life. And I think that part of that is that innovation happens at every level of the business. It could be a logistician, it could be an IT professional, it could be literally anyone in the organization that finds an idea. But I think that as the IT leader, you need to be able to let them leverage the correct technology right. so that, number one, that idea can get to the top. You know, Eric Reese talks about, the author of The Lean Startup, that the innovation, like if you were to have an innovation score for a company, it would be the speed in which an idea could get from the bottom of the organization all the way to the top. And I think that that framework and that shift of thinking is absolutely going to be a thread for successful companies that continue to endure and a shift in the industry. Is that yeah, right? I would absolutely agree with that. And it's not just getting the idea from ground floor to top really fast. It's the amount of understanding and, if you like, breadth of knowledge that I as a CIO and the people who work for me now have to have. If you're up against a startup that specializes in one particular thing, they are probably always going to move faster have more knowledge about it than you will. But what you've got to do now as a CIO is I have to constantly have a 101 knowledge of many of these new things. If I go into the downstream, a director, I was in his office today and he wants to talk about blockchain. I can't sit there and say, well, John, sorry, don't know the first thing about that. I've got to be able to have a conversation. Where are we currently using it? Where have we seen other people use it? What level of maturity is it really at? I spend a lot of my time now reading and listening and going to CIO panels and talking and listening to what others have to say, because you have to know so much. 
your ability then to take an idea and get it to proof of concept is one thing. In a company of our size, the biggest challenge is how do you scale and deploy? If you have that idea, but how do you take it to world scale fast? And that is a very big challenge. So I'm asking a lot of my people. One of the other things we've been pushing hard across our folks is, okay, I want you to spend 10% of your week learning, 10% of your time learning. Yeah, that's a morning a week. That's a bit of a shock to people. There's almost a counterculture. Oh, I see so-and-so sitting there reading a magazine. Yeah, wish I had time. We've had to really push, you know what, guys, you do have time. Because if you don't, we'll stagnate, we'll stop, we won't move forward. Fantastic. Go out and have breakfast or have lunch with or spend a couple of hours in the morning with some business folks, maybe with a couple of suppliers. Because of course, these days, the other thing is you don't just go with one supplier. To put together these ideas, you need an ecosystem. Just as we need an ecosystem in Shell to generate a new business model, so in IT, we tend to have to bring an ecosystem together around a solution. So to me, learning is also about sitting down with colleagues, having a little bit of fun, talking through ideas that the business is having, opportunities, threats we see, disruptive business models. Could we do that in Shell? Could we try that out? So all of this is a new way of working. It's not just about being a great IT person. You've got to become a great business person. You've got to have a genuine interest and love and idea of the business, how it makes money, where we could do things with technology to get more people to want our product and to get more people to want to use us as a service. And I don't think there's ever been a more fun time, but a more challenging time to be a CIO. I mean, it's scary. You know, the day I have to go into John and say, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't spot that coming. We've just lost a billion dollars worth of business. That's a bad day. But we also have the opportunity to really make our companies great. I think as CIOs, you have to take your place at the table, at the board, wherever it might be, and you've got to be a business person first, but come with all that challenging, that opportunity, those ideas you've got, and not be afraid to inject those into a strategic conversation and into any business decision that's being made. You've got to take your place. You've got to stand up for your professional drive. You know, it's a different world. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. And I love the view on learning and how you engage employees. And obviously, that's part of why we're doing IT visionaries, right? Is so you can have something on the ride to work or the ride home from work that spurs ideas and innovation. But I think the idea that back a decade ago that you would implement a sales force and it's like, oh, well, that's just for the sales people. And then now it's totally different. It's like, oh, wait, we can see the entire organization through this. Maybe everyone should be involved in that. Maybe everyone should have access to that same data and we could leverage it across the entire company so that other people can see business functions to eliminate those silos. Absolutely. Data democratization, this idea that data is available to everyone, I think is really important. We don't make enough of our data. I, 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 you know, I think many companies struggle with this. We've gone into an era of, well, we must protect and lock down and make sure they don't have access to. And you know, I'm embedding a chief data officer into every one of my lines of business under downstream, bringing a team in under them because we have to break this open. People have to understand the data that's available, the catalog of the data that's available, else they go out and try and generate more of it or 
take wrong bits of it or don't understand the purpose of it. So let's get the catalog. Let's get our people out there working with them. And you're right. The thing about tools like Salesforce, as you just mentioned, is one of the other things I've been saying to my people is, look, many of us used to be programmers. Let's learn enough about it. I want the end of PowerPoint. I want prototypes, not PowerPoint. And in something like Salesforce, you can go talk to somebody, spend two, three hours workshopping something. You can go back in the afternoon with a prototype connected to real data. So something like Salesforce that I can use as a wrapper around my big systems like GSAP, I can hide some of it and create another process via the various workflows there. You can very quickly bring a new way of working to life without changing the core too much. And that's really important because we've spent, like a lot of companies, billions of dollars creating very secure, reliable core. Now, how do I leverage that to give the guy on the ground the information he or she needs to do to be that salesperson, to be that lubricant specialist, to be the aviation guy out there on the plane fueling it with a mobile tablet in his hand, which is all things we've done right. That revolutionizes the things you're doing and your interaction and your relationship with the airlines, as an example. Yeah, and the other piece is that it feels good. And this is one of the things that I think people gloss over is it feels really good as an employee to have the data at your fingertips, to be the subject matter expert, to be able to inform other people and to help them and be that like consultative salesperson. No matter what job you are in the organization, like if you feel empowered with the information that you have and you feel like an expert, it's going to make your job more enjoyable and, and life more enjoyable. Well, and if you look at our subsurface people in the upstream, the geologists, the people who in reservoir engineers, people who interpret the seismic data, et cetera, right? We've done studies that show they spend most of their time hunting for the data. That's ridiculous. These are highly paid people, right? So you now look at some of the things we've done there around AI and machine learning and making the data available. The fascinating thing is, you know, we have seismic going back 100 years or more. Some of that old seismic is analog, it's very primitive, but the system is now a bit like the, I think, the scanning a a medical scan for cancer cells has become almost a de facto way of thinking about the way AI can do things better than a human. We have systems that can go back and look at that old data and go, whoa, hang on a minute, you might want to go back and look at this. These wells you abandoned years ago because you didn't hit anything. Actually, go 100 yards to the right. If I look at the modern stuff and look at that, there's a correlation here. So suddenly we're, we're going back to very old data and being able to extract value from it. So making that data available, putting it together, as you say, putting the tools out there for people to use in whatever type of visualization they need to do empowers people to use their brains. Yeah, I think it's the wonderful thing about AI. In the next 10 years, I don't think it's going to take over, but what it sure as hell is going to be able to do is really help your people do a much better job by spotting the things that the human brain is not good at doing and then allowing the human brain to do the stuff it is good at doing. Oh, absolutely. We talk about that all the time at the mission, that a robot can do the job of 50 humans, but a human can do the job that 50 robots could never do. Right. Take the robot out of the human and liberate the human to do their job best. I love that. So I need to go back to a point that you said earlier, which I absolutely love, where you said prototypes, not PowerPoints. Is that your creation? Because that is that is a killer line. I don't know whether it was my creation. I better not take whatever for that. But I think it's so true, right? I think we went through a phase in Shell for maybe 10 years where people very much got into being program managers and business analysts and forgot what the real job was about. 
And I think now we're in such a wonderful world where you can drag and drop and okay, it may not have everything it needs behind it, but you can visualize what the end product will look like. And as we all know, if you can visualize the thing, you far more understand what it's going to be, what it's not going to be. You buy into it, you make suggestions, you rapidly prototype, and you get to something that's very useful very fast. And I think that's vital, right? I don't want projects that go on for years anymore. You don't have that these days because the technology moves on, the business case moves on, the business is moving so fast that if you don't move pretty rapidly from an idea, as you just mentioned earlier, from an idea to a working version that can be deployed in the field, and it may just be a minimal viable version of it, let's get it out there, let's try it. If it works, brilliant. We'll build it and we'll industrialize it and roll it. If it doesn't, kill it. But if the minute you start with writing PowerPoint slides and reports on things, that becomes more important than the product. People spend time gold plating the report, wordsmithing the report. No, no, no. Let's get the thing out there. Let's go play with it. Let's try it. As I say, Salesforce is a great way of doing that. I love that. And the idea that everybody can build an app. It's true that you could stop a meeting after 35 seconds and say, all right, take the rest of the afternoon and go build it. Yeah, let's try this. How fun is that as an IT leader that you can empower people to just say, hey, go do it. And I think that makes the job a more rewarding experience. And all of what I've talked about, when I arrived into this role, none of my leaders sat on the business leadership teams. Now, because we're proactive and we've taken time to understand and be part of it. Every single one of my leaders sits on the executive vice president's business team, full-time members, and the people underneath them. So our credibility has changed. Now, there were issues around, which is a whole different story, around the cost when I arrived, and we reduced our cost by 40 to 50% and nobody noticed the damn difference, which proved how poor we were at one point. So <laughs> we're now more reliable, we're more operationally up, we're more secure, and our projects run way, way faster. And our whole credibility because of that shift in the first year was, yeah, Craig, great about the cost. Yeah, yeah, nice to see one graph. But, you know, let's talk about this AI. What could it do for us? So the business moved. And you have to have the right people. They got credibility. They talk business. They're in there with the teams. They're challenging. They're orchestrating. They're making it happen. And suddenly IT is at the top table. And that's what you have to have. That's what you have to have in this world. Because if we're not there... If we're not part of it, because let's face it, just about every part of a business these days requires IT to make it successful. If I'm not successful, Shell Downstream will not be successful. I mean, it's as simple as that, I think. I don't think that's an arrogant proposition. I think that's just a fact these days. Well, and I love the idea that you're looking at things and saying, I'm going to put a chief data scientist on each business unit's team, right? Those type of ideas where it's, hey, you need access to the data. Here's a person, here's your lead that can be, you know, a cross-functional team member where they're working with IT and they're working with the business unit directly so that they have instant access to that. Yeah, so as an IT executive, we took a decision that we needed to set up a professional chief data officer for the whole of Shell. So Royal Dutch Shell CIO, my boss, did that. We endorsed it as the exec. And then we exploded that down through the organization. You know, they say data's the new oil. Well, okay, we're no longer an oil company. We're very much moving <laughs> to being an energy company. And that is a huge transition in itself, which again requires IT to bring together energy systems, to find energy, make energy, distribute energy, deliver it to the end user, et cetera, full of IT. But the data underlying this, we have not traditionally been good at. We know we're not good at it. And we know if we don't shift that position, 
it will be harder to fight off all those little boats that are trying to catch us up. I love that. You're graciously giving a bunch of your time, but we still have the lightning round to go. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready as I'll ever be. Great. (laughs) Okay, first question. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I got a minute to answer, haven't I? I could be really boring and say Facebook because my wife and my kids are distributed all over the world. And it's one of the only thing that keeps us in touch, at least seeing and knowing what they're doing. I actually have got into it at the moment an app called One Second Per Day. So every day you can post a second of video or a picture And at the end of the year, you can play it back. And I do love that app because at the end of the year, I can go, wow, that's what I was doing because it goes past so fast. And I'm stupid enough to put a flight. I take a picture of the plane every time I take a flight. I think last year there were 68 pictures of planes, which was worrying. So yeah, it's called 1SE, one second every day or something. Great fun, great app. Okay, what's your favorite time-saving tool? Probably Alexa. I can speak to her. She doesn't always answer the question right, but she normally answers me fast and I can find it on my phone. Are you personally using AI or chatbots or anything things like that? Personally, no. Well, AI is a big subject, isn't it? I mean, gosh, am I using AI? I probably use it every time I hit one of those apps on my phone, which is doing it on my behalf, but not personally. Although I am involved with an NED that is going in with some AI around the recruitment business, which will be interesting. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? My favorite team has got to be Manchester United, has been for the last 50 years. So I have to be faithful to that one. (laughs) Excellent. Favorite podcast? I like podcasts that talk about people's experiences. There's a lot of podcasts out there. I can't pick on a favorite one per se, but I like ones that are personal. Someone talks about a journey they've been on. And I always find that very educational. That'll be round two of our interview. We'll get the true Craig Walker story, the deep dive into your past. That's scary. That's scary. <laughs> favorite recent book that you've read? Probably the favorite recent book I read was Origin by Dan Brown. That was fun. Oh. That was fun. I, I, I read a lot of business books, but then so do a lot of people. Origin by Dan Brown was interesting. And it, I'm about to read Homo Deus, but my wife stole it off me and read it first. But I will read that next. Excellent. Favorite TV show you're watching? Oh, Black Mirror. Love it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love Westworld as well, right? So just finish both of those. Uh, Both very good. And and, and Game of Thrones isn't back yet, so I can't say that. But Black Mirror is, I find that one fascinating. Favorite one-day getaway in London? I live right in the heart of London, so that's a toughie. I tell you what is fun in London, particularly this time of year, is just to get on one of those boats and cruise up the Thames and see everything that's going on. That's a good one. It's well worth it. I've not done that. That's That'll be on my, on my list. Find one that serves a cold beer. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite Dreamforce moment? Oh, gosh. I think three things stood out for me from last year. I was lucky enough to be there with my wife, who was there under her own right. But the interview between Mark Benioff and Michelle Obama was something else. Yeah, that's a good one. That was really spectacular. Alan Baldwin over lunch, very good. Will I Am and Steve Jobs' wife, that was an excellent interview as well. It always amazes me, somebody like Will I Am, how much they're doing for charity, how much you don't know the real person, you just know the public persona. You know? So true. Fascinating. Okay, that's it. That was the lightning round. <laughs> that wasn't very lightning, sorry. <laughs> you did great. Okay. So the lightning round is presented by the lightning platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now building apps is everyone's business. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. 
Well, that's it. That's the end of the interview here. If there's any final parting thoughts on the changing nature of IT that you'd love to share with our audience? I think it's incredibly challenging times to be a CIO, but I really think this is the time that the CIO and the IT department, if it is still considered as a service, if it's still considered as a back room, that is a recipe for disaster for a company. And and you have to be able to, as a CIO and your leading team, find the place you're going to create your credibility and then step through a door that is being held open for you. You know, I think it's an amazing time to be in technology. Wonderful technology companies such as Salesforce around us. You know, I think you go back 10 years, the business dreamt of being able to do many things, but the technology couldn't do it. Now, the technology can do just about anything. And whatever you want to dream, we can have a damn good go at delivering. I think there's no doubt about that. I'm sure in 10 years' time, someone will listen to this podcast and go, God, they were so primitive back then. Do you know they still have mobile phones? But I really think this is the time. And this is the time you stand up and be counted and you show what you can deliver for your company. I love that. Well, that's all we have for today. I really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you, Ian. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps.